Welcome to the latest podcast from Greyfriars Church in Reading. Our vision is to see Reading transformed by the love and power of Jesus. You can find out more on our website, greyfriars.org.uk. Enjoy. Thank you so much. Welcome. Oh. Or rather, hello. Hello, everyone. Um, for those that don't know me, I'm Chris. Uh, I'm the curate here at Greyfriars. And as the curate, I get to do things slightly differently because I'm new. And what, I've, uh, what I'm going to do differently is I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbour. I know you've spoken to your neighbours quite a lot. But I'd like you to turn to your neighbour and try and recall the different topics that we've covered in this sermon series. The reason I'm doing this is because I am preaching on our final uh, sermon series topic, uh, the call to deny oneself. So I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbour and see if you can recall the last few weeks, or even just one, that would be great as well, um, and see if you can uh, do better than your neighbour. Brilliant. If you'd bring your conversations to a close. Uh, hands up who thinks they can remember all of the sermon series that we've been going through. All the topics. I feel sorry for whoever was paired with David. He, was, he obviously knows that off by heart. Well, anyway, we've, we've gone through the series of calling and the, the different topics as a small reminder to you. is that we've gone through the call to live sacrificially, the call to listen, the call to follow, the call to serve, and then lastly, last week, the call to generosity. And then today, we're exploring the final uh, topic within our series, which is the call to deny oneself. And in my eyes, this, uh, I, I kind of get to put the cherry on top of the big cake of, of the sermon series, because I think that self-denial is something that is, uh, is threaded through all of what we've been going through in the last five or six weeks. Now, Mark uh, outlines very specifically what it looks like. Jesus is very clear about what self-denial looks like for those that call themselves follow, followers of Christ. This is not necessarily easy, it's not necessarily uh, something we like to hear, but something that we all need to hear. And so why don't I start in prayer as we explore what God is saying to us. Father God, thank you that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are kind, but above all else, you have told us what it looks like to follow you. We thank you that we don't have to arm and are in, in confusion, but rather we can trust in you and your word. May we have ears to hear 
and hearts willing to be transformed this morning. Amen. So I think the best way to explore this passage is actually to tell you a little bit about what's happened just before this passage. We've just explored the fact that Jesus is telling his disciples uh, what they must do in order to be a disciple. But the last couple of chapters before this passage today, we see Jesus has already proven himself to the disciples about who he is and what he can do. Now, the book of Mark is notoriously short and sharp, And we've hit the halfway mark, and we see that Jesus has performed miracles, most recently uh, to our passage, the healing of the deaf and mute man, and and the blind man in Bethsaida. He's proven his might over the unseen world by delivering the Greek woman's daughter. And lastly, he's been rebuking the Pharisees and the Roman authorities, showing his wisdom and knowledge from on high. He is going about his mission to bring God's people back to the Father through what he does and who he is. Peter has just told us, literally the the passage before the one we're in now, has just told us about who he thinks Jesus is. In verse 29, uh, Peter rightfully identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And in many ways, this is an excellent moment for the disciples because they are masters of getting things wrong or being slow on the uptake. So to see them actually get something right is a pretty great triumph. However, Peter and the disciples would have heard the word Messiah in a very different way to how we understand the word. They would have understood what Messiah is by seeing a great military leader who is meant to save the Jewish nation from the Roman oppression. He would have been seen as, the, uh, as a warrior, uh, as a king, similar to uh, King David. It, in, in, in a very crude way, it would be similar to having kind of an undercover boss or something, uh, whereby you discover the person that you've been around for the last couple of years uh, would actually, in fact, be uh, Cristiano Ronaldo or Elon Musk or, or Teresa, uh, Teresa May, sorry, <laughs> Mother Teresa. Oh, gosh. Far less controversial person. Or a combination of any one of those three slash four people. But this does not last long. Jesus tells them something that is truly distressing to them. After Peter reveals that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus tells them that he must suffer and die. To which we see probably the most hot-headed response from Peter. He rebukes Jesus. Who, would, who here would rebuke Jesus? Yeah, no, me neither. Um, does this seem appropriate? Well, in a sense, yes. In a world where honour and shame uh, were such strong motivators in how one ought to live their life, this would have been one of the worst things that Jesus could have said that would happen. See, the ancient Mediterranean societies operated within a, a honour-shame culture whereby one's worth and stature in life revolved around one's honour, which was determined by the community's uh, perception of you. For one to be well-received in this culture, one would have to be honourable. And this would be achieved in any one of three ways. You are either born into an honourable family to inherit your honour, or you would act honourably, so you'd have large large stories of how honourable you were. Or rather, the last one, 
thing, you were honored by your position. The greater the leader you were, the greater honor you had, the greater you were. Honor made you famous and revered by society. But on the flip side, if you were shamed or dishonorable, you would be ostracized by your community as people would disassociate themselves from you. This would be to protect their own social status, that their social status would not be affected by you, by being associated by the dishonorable person. Therefore, Jesus saying that God's saviour would suffer and die was to openly admit defeat before battle even began, which would bring untold shame to the nation and to Jesus' disciples specifically. Not only that, but this was coming from the leader, the the venerated one, the, the promised and the prayed for one. For Jesus to die, given his title and stature, was inconceivable to them. If Jesus was indeed to die, then all hope would be lost. He would forever be remembered as the shamed leader who never accomplished what he was sent to do. Now we know that that's not how the story goes nor how the story ends. But for the disciples, this is what they heard. This is what they were experiencing. And this is why Peter felt the need to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter and in many ways doubles down. Not only does Jesus depict his mission on earth as something in which he suffers and he dies for, he then says to the disciples that they also must deny themselves in order to follow him. So denying oneself. Now, denying oneself is a worldwide recognized virtue. People of all nations, all religions, all cultures can recognize the importance and the commendation of putting others before themselves. The fact that you are not the only person in the world and others are important and worth sacrificing some of your worldly comforts for in order to see others succeed. We all recognize that to be a good thing. However, our passage here does not lead us to blind self-denial for arbitrary reasons. Jesus calls us uh, for a specific type of denial of oneself. We are to deny ourselves in order that we follow him. There is a self-denial, a self-emptying in order that we may gain and be filled by God. We must lose ourselves in order that we can be led and follow Jesus. And here we see in this passage, we see what it looks like to follow Christ. We are given the image of the cross. The cross, which we are so used to seeing, something that we can only hear or see in light of the last 2,000 years of Christian iconography. We see the cross as a reminder of our Savior a reminder of love, a reminder of grace and mercy that God has for all of us. We may enjoy seeing the cross. Maybe we have a piece of jewellery that has a cross on it. But the listeners of Jesus' words would not be so neutral or upbeat. The world in the ancient Near East would have known this as a punishment of the greatest form of shaming the world had to know. It was the ultimate punishment. It would cost your life and it would cost your honor. 
The cross re- re- uh, resembled immense shame, such shame that the Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be subjected to this form of punishment. And it was this that was to become the earmark of what a follower of Jesus looked like. There is little to describe effectively what a modern day parallel to this type of thing is. But those that wish to follow Jesus were to have less than nothing, not even death with dignity. That was the extent to which they were to deny themselves for the sake of Jesus. Now we might use the word humiliation instead as the best way of understanding this feeling. For the disciples to pick up one's cross was the very literal self-emptying exercise that they would have nothing left once they did. Now when we hear the words pick up your cross, what are we to understand what this means? There are two things specifically that we are to understand about the call to deny ourselves by picking up our cross. Opposition and suffering. Many of us will already know these things, but many of us might not, or only know it in theory. But to follow the way of Jesus and to pick up one's cross is to enter into the world no longer as citizens of it, but rather citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven and therefore no longer conform to the world and its ways. Instead, we partake in the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation of God to his people and reconciliation of one another as neighbours. That is why we come up against opposition. Our lives represent a different kind of mission to the one that the world seeks to achieve. We are ministers of grace and peace. Something that the world is in desperate need of and yet will push away from and not always accept we must be confident that we when we come up against opposition that our feet are firmly grounded in the gospel and that it is Jesus that gives us the strength to withstand all opposition and stand tall in the face of adversity and with opposition suffering soon follows For even standing firm and tall in the gospel, our lives will not always be accepted for what they are. I remember when I was at university, um, we had a guest speaker for one of our seminars, the, the vicar of Baghdad, Andrew White. He came to visit and told us of countless stories of horrific persecution that the Christians in Iraq faced at that time. This same persecution that the disciples suffered, those Christians in Iraq suffered also. Being moved away from their homes, suffering death and uh, and beatings and penalties, all in the name of living life for Jesus. Now, in many respects, here in the UK, we have been spared of that experience. But the persecution of the church in the West is one of conformity. We are pressured to look increasingly more like the world than we do Jesus. Our suffering comes when we stand up for Jesus more than we do our livelihoods, our political affiliations, our family or our friends. We suffer because we deny ourselves 
and our desires to conform to this world. So what does this mean to suffer and to face opposition in order that we follow Jesus Christ? In my eyes, I see it like this. Life is a story made up of moments. These moments may make up our days, our weeks, our months, our years, our lives. These moments define us, who we are. They define us because Jesus has given us a choice. We are not robots. We are not programmed. If we were programmed, we would not have choice. But if we were to have no choice, it would not matter what we loved or did not love, what we hated or did not hate. We are not programmed. Our lives are our own and we have choice. Jesus knows that. And so he gives us a choice to make. In these moments in our lives, when we make, those cho- make these choices, we can no longer stick our heads in the sand, nor sit on our hands and wait for someone else to make the decision for us. We here in this room are no longer naive, nor ignorant of the truth. We have a choice. These moments will always be represented by a cross. You could be in a, a board meeting or a classroom a waiting room, or the family home, the pub, or a park. You could be anywhere, and there it will be, a cross. Big or small, the cross will be there with you. And wherever you are in the crossroads, there will be the choice. You know Jesus Christ, you know the power and might, you know his love and compassion. You know his salvation plan for you and for many. And so you have a choice. Jesus speaks to each and every one of us here, there and then in those moments. You want to be a follower of me? Pick up your cross. You want to know what it is to live life for Jesus? Pick up your cross. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. I'm going to carry on talking, but I'd like you to reflect as I say some more, some more words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor during the World War II, who openly spoke out against the Nazi regime, is quoted saying this. Those who acknowledge that they view suffering and tribulation in their own lives only as something hostile and evil, can see from this very fact that they have not at all found peace with God. They have basically merely sought out the peace of the world, believing possibly that by means of the cross of Jesus Christ that they may come to terms with themselves and with all their questions and thus find inner peace of the soul. They have used the cross, but not loved it. They have sought out peace for their own sake. But when tribulation comes, that peace quickly flees them. It was not peace with God, for they hated the tribulation God sends. Whether we have found God's peace will be shown by how we deal with the sufferings that will come upon us.
See, the cross represents opposition, suffering, shame, and death. And this is exactly what we see in these moments. Our moments might scare us. They might fill us with dread. They may even cause us to shake. And yet this is the choice that is given to us. Are we ready? Are we prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are we ready to be humiliated for the sake of the gospel? Are we ready to die for the sake of the gospel? When you feel ready, feel free to open your eyes. Our moments are at once fulfilled when we step into the void, upon the deep waters, into the fiery furnace, when we pick up our cross, for we see what beauty is behind the denial of our own lives. Our lives, moment by moment, decision by decision, give us life in all its fullness because we no longer bind ourselves to the things of the world, but instead bind ourselves to Jesus Christ. For he has gone before us, experienced that suffering, experienced that shame, experienced that death, and yet he was raised to life. And he was raised to the right hand of the Father. We have a great high priest who knows our pain, our suffering, the death that we will all die, and nonetheless says, Follow me. Our lives are situated on the other side of picking up one's cross because we have decided to follow Jesus. And so as we come to the end of our sermon series on calling, having already sought God on where we might serve or what we might give, I want us to consider one last question that we might ask of God. Where in my life do I need to lose myself in order that I may gain Jesus? Where in my life do I need to pick up my cross and faithfully follow him? Where in my life have I grown callous to the suffering and sought comfort over Jesus? We are all tested. We all make choices in these moments that define our lives. But sometimes we can hit the autopilot button and pretend that things are okay. Let us spur one another on, on a life of self-denial for Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you do not call us to a life of ease and comfort, but you call us to a life full of you. Many of us today will know what it is to live a life of self-denial. But Lord God, I ask that you would speak into the hearts of all of us here that we may experience once more the grace, love and mercy that you give to us of where we have fallen down, where we have not chosen to pick our cross up. 
and give us that, that strength to put one foot in front of the other as we follow you. As we obey your commands, as we seek your voice. Lord God, would we know what it is to live a life for you and not for ourselves. Amen.